I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and we're going to read from verses 1, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. While you're turning there, one announcement we neglected to make, and we should not have done so, um, but Elmer Schertzer, our dear brother Elmer Schertzer, passed away on Friday afternoon. Uh, he had been declining precipitously in the last three weeks, and uh, he died Friday. He was ready for this moment, and uh, his uh, family cared well for him over the last three weeks. And uh, the services for Elmer are going to be next Saturday. They're going to be here at the church. You'll be able to call on the family at 10 o'clock, and then the service itself will be at 11 here next Saturday, so the 29th of December. Uh, and it is good to see, well, it's always good to see Stephen Barb Scherzer, wish it was under different circumstances, uh, but Stephen Barb Scherzer Outreach Partners who are serving in Alabama are here this morning, and they have been traveling back and forth in Pennsylvania trying to care for Steve's father here and Barb's parents out in western Pennsylvania, so they have been uh, pressured a little bit, but it's good to see them here this morning, and you'll want to greet them uh, at the end of the service and tell them you're glad to see them this morning. But um, you be in prayer for the rest of the Scherzer uh, family and rejoicing with Elmer because this was his great hope and expectation and uh, his faith has become sight and we rejoice for him. Now, Matthew 1, verse 18 through 25. Follow along in your scriptures as I read. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because her husband Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, <coughs> son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. One of my great privileges as a pastor is to go visit people in the hospital, especially newborn parents. 
I love to walk into uh, maternity wards. They don't call them that anywhere. Women and babies centers. I love to walk in there as often as I can. I take my children when we go and visit. And uh, I walk into a room and there's a newborn baby and some parents. And I always ask the question, tell me what happened. Tell me about it. And they begin. The story begins. I hear about when the contractions started and how they proceeded and I hear about the first call to the doctor and, and, and the drive to the hospital. Sometimes it's harrowing. I hear about that. Uh, I hear about how long they had to wait in triage. I, ha- I hear about the insertion of the epidural and how it went and how it didn't go and, how, and all that. Sometimes I get a lot of details. <laughs> Sometimes. I don't mind that. My wife's a nurse. I can talk about anything. Whatever makes you happy is fine. But I always ask, tell me about it. I asked for a couple of different reasons. One, I asked uh, uh, to hear the birth story because this is a joyous occasion and joy is doubled when it is shared. Let me tell you this good news, this thing happened to me. The other reason I asked, the story, asked to hear the story is because birth is traumatic. And one of the ways that people process trauma is by talking about it. So I listened to a lot of stories. When Matthew begins this section of scripture that we just read by saying... This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. He does not tell the story that we expect. He does not at all talk about any of Mary's contractions. He doesn't have anything funny to say about what Mary said to Joseph when she was pushing. You know, you think you're having another one, you're out of your mind. right? There's nothing in the text like that at all. There's no, no... No details about who else might have been there or how it felt or how the contractions proceeded or dilation. There's nothing in here about that at all. In fact, when the text says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about, and actually all it does is it tells us about the father, Joseph, and how he responded months before Jesus was born. That's strange. Does that strike anybody else as strange? It's not a normal birth story. Today we're going to talk about Joseph. Uh, When I was talking to my daughter Jenna about this uh, sermon, she said something that I have thought to myself several times. She said, you know, Joseph gets underrated, I think. He doesn't get all the credit that he deserves. And I think she's exactly right. In fact, I think that Joseph was just as carefully chosen to parent the Lord Jesus as Mary was. And today I want to talk about why that is or how we know that. Well, actually what we're going to do is I want to discuss with you this morning Two reasons why Matthew focuses our attention on Joseph. Why he tells this story from this father's perspective. It's important to know because uh, through Joseph's eyes, as we look at this story, we begin to understand more fully who Jesus is. (coughs) I still haven't gotten over this. Who Jesus is and why Jesus came. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the role that uh, Joseph plays, all in, uh, to help us understand why we celebrate Christmas the way we do. So here we go. The first role. What does Joseph do? Well, Joseph, first of all, he stands here as the chief witness to the virgin birth of Jesus. He stands here as the uh, chief witness to the virgin birth of Jesus. As we pick up and start reading this story, Matthew, when he tells the story of the arrival of of God's son, he gives us five scenes, and all five of these scenes are punctuated by a fulfillment formula, kind of like in verse 22, where it says, all this took place to fulfill what the prophet says. Well, um, 
uh, Matthew says that five times in all five scenes. And what Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to tell us that when the Lord Jesus came, he came as the fulfillment of God's word. That Jesus' birth, his arrival, is the fulfillment of God's promises. God keeps his word. Now, it's interesting, Luke, when Luke tells the story of Jesus' arrival, he gives us different, a different perspective. Luke emphasizes that Jesus' arrival is a gift of God's love. Jesus has come as a sign of God's grace, his kindness. But Matthew wants us to know that the Lord Jesus has come in fulfillment of the promises that God has made. And the emphasis in this first scene that we just read is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a virgin-born son. If you have any doubts about that emphasis, it's quoted in verse 22. It's mentioned at the beginning of the passage, verse 18. It says, before they came together. It's emphasized at the end, verse 25. He did not consummate their marriage. That's, that's the emphasis. And actually, this virgin conception... Virgin conception is actually a better phrase than virgin birth, but we always use the term virgin born, so we'll go with that. Um, it, it's the complicating factor in this story. It's the thing that causes Joseph so much trouble. We'll come to that in a minute. I, I want to pause for a minute here, though, and think about what the Bible teaches when it talks to us about the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's a universal, it's a testimony of the Bible. Uh, it is in Matthew and in Luke. All the birth stories in the Gospels, Jesus was born of a virgin. When skeptics describe their doubts about the Bible, this is often one of the first things that come up. Um, Nicholas Kristof is a writer for the New York Times, and every year about this time, he has an interview with some conservative Christian. Uh, and what's interesting to me as I have seen these articles over the years is how much he asks them about the virgin birth. Do I really need to believe this? Can I be a Christian without believing this? Are you sure? Are you sure you really want to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Uh, followers of Jesus have been talking about this for a long time. Uh, the virgin birth is attested to in all of scripture. It's been the universal declaration of the church in all of her confessions from the very beginning. It was one of the major issues that divided denominations in the early 20th century when, when um, Church groups were being split apart over what was fundamental to their faith. This was one of the fundamentals, the virgin birth. There's a man, his name was uh, J. Gresham Machen. He was a Presbyterian. And he wrote a book called The Virgin Birth in 1930. And its arguments still have not been overturned, really. Uh, some skeptics say that, that the virgin birth, that Christians stole the virgin birth from other ancient myths. There are ancient myths of gods impregnating women. They're grotesque. They're uh, graphic. Nothing like uh, Matthew's very plain description. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Nothing like that. The Bible is very subtle, very gentle. Uh, it, it does not imply any sort of immorality here between God and, and Mary like those ancient myths did. This is, this is a story of a whole other uh, uh, foundation. We believe in the virgin birth for two reasons. One, the Bible teaches it consistently. And two, we believe in it because it focuses our attention on the identity of the Lord Jesus. He's the God-man. He's truly God and truly human. Two natures united in one person. 
Uh, the virgin birth is like that crucial piece in a Jenga tower. You ever played Jenga? You know, it's your turn. You kind of feel your way around and see if you can find a block that you can remove without making the whole tower fall. Some of them, some of them just slide right out so easily. Some of them you touch and you, ooh, if I move that piece, the whole thing's coming down. The virgin birth is, is in that tower, and it's one of those crucial pieces. I, many of the objections to uh, the virgin birth are rooted not necessarily in this story, but just with a general skepticism about miracles. You know, we're men and women of the 21st century. We're not superstitious nitwits like these ancient peoples. We believe in science. Uh, we don't believe in magic. Paul Miller, in his great book about prayer, can't recommend it highly enough, he talks about how uh, we in our culture are educated to believe the world into two great spheres. There is the world of nature and the world of science and the world of facts and observation. And then there's the spiritual world where we talk about things like praying and miracles and, and gods. And the worlds are divided and never should they meet. He illustrates how this works. One time his daughter had a science project to do. She was working on a science lab, and it was a project she required her father's help. And uh, he, she said, all right, let's start. And he said, okay, good. First thing we're going to do is we're going to pray. And she said, Dad, this is a science lab. We don't pray when we do science. He said, why not? Is, is, not the God we're is, is not the world we're investigating with your science made by the God that, to whom we can pray? Uh, in fact, actually, the Bible, so we divide the world into these two, these two groups. And if you're intelligent, if you're uh, sophisticated, you know that this side, the spiritual side, is really kind of imaginary anyway, right? So we don't believe in miracles. We believe in science, Except the Bible tells us, has us look at the world, not by dividing it into two categories like that, but by reminding that we live in one cohesive whole that was created and is governed by God. And the reason that it works, the reason that science works, the reason we can talk about scientific laws is because God is sustaining it and upholding it and, and keeping it together. The natural world is not distinct nor independent of the supernatural world. And sometimes in the providence of God, unexpected things like virgin births happen. Well, only once. And God gives us this witness, this man whose name is Joseph. Let's follow his story for just a minute. He's a witness to the virgin birth, and, and he's a trustworthy witness. We know he's trustworthy by how the Bible describes what he does. He's someone you can, you can trust. Well, we're going to trace his story. Verse 18 says that he was pledged. That's my translation. It says pledged to be married. Um, your translation might say engaged or maybe even betrothed. So a betrothal is like an engagement, only more so, more binding. A betrothal was a witnessed event. It was a public event. And betrothals usually lasted about a year it was the amount of time that would give a man uh, the time to fulfill his, his um, responsibilities to get ready for his marriage, maybe to pay the dowry. He got a year to do this. And then after the betrothal period was over, the couple would then have a public ceremony in which they would then live together and begin their married life. 
Uh, during the betrothal period, they were called husband, they were called wife. Uh, and uh, if you wanted to end a betrothal, you had to do it through a divorce. So it's a little bit different than our engagement. But toward what seems to be, I think, the end, toward the end uh, of their betrothal period, Mary was found to be pregnant. Found by whom? Most likely Joseph. He found out that she was pregnant. Next question. By whom is she pregnant? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. But I love how Matthew just impresses us here. Uh, he creates this tension. You and I know that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Mary knows that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph does not know that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So what's Joseph going to do about this? The logical conclusion that Joseph draws is that Mary has been unfaithful to him. He knows that he is not the father, and he knows it takes a mother and a father to make a baby. He's not a superstitious yahoo. He understands how this works. C.S. Lewis said that the only reason that Joseph is upset here is because he knows where babies come from. And he knows what must have happened. Mary must have been unfaithful to him. There's no other logical conclusion for him to draw. We are looking here at a man between verses 18 and 19 whose life has been shattered. I know where the baby came from. You know where the baby came from. Joseph, though, he doesn't know here where the baby come, came from. His life has been shattered. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to read too much um, into the text. This is not a romantic dilemma. Our ideas of romance didn't really develop until the, the Middle Ages. Joseph is not sitting at home listening to sad love songs and rereading all the Valentine's Day cards that Mary gave him, okay? That's not what he's doing. But, but he still must have had some hopes and expectations, right? Some thought about what marriage to Mary was going to be like. We know this girl, right? She's a class act. Joseph has won the betrothal jackpot, but not anymore. Apparently, she's an adulteress. He must have been upset about this. Some of you know what it's like to have your life shattered like this. Uh, maybe it happened to you in a relationship. Your fiancé wasn't faithful to you. Or after you got married, you discovered that they weren't who they pretended to be. Maybe your retirement was shattered. I know a couple, uh, they were all set for their retirement. They had, they had a, the house in the north and they had a house in the south and they were going to be snowbirds and that's how their life was going to be and it was going to be great. And then their son unexpectedly died and they suddenly found themselves partnering with their daughter-in-law and raising two small children and all their plans kind of fell apart. Shattering. What Joseph doesn't know is that his life has been shattered by God himself. Sinclair Ferguson said, whenever Christ enters a life, everything is rearranged around him as its new center. So the temptation when your life is shattered is to make what shatters it the new center of your life. And Joseph's challenge is to make God the center of his life and the decisions that he's going to make. Now, look at his response. His response tells us that he's a trustworthy witness. The text tells us, um, 
that he is a righteous man. Well, my translation says he was faithful to the law. Uh, that's a good translation, uh, except it does cover up how important the word righteous is in the book of Matthew. To be righteous yeah, means not that you're perfect, but it means that you're rightly related to God, that you take God's commands seriously, that you worship him, that you obey him, that you offer the sacrifices that God commanded his people, uh, the Jews, to make. Um, Joseph's life was oriented toward God. He was a believer, a real and genuine believer. And because of that, he cannot, he cannot marry this unfaithful woman. She apparently does not share his same commitment to God's word. That must have been a shock to Joseph. Or, see, if he does marry her, what he would be saying is either that her unfaithfulness doesn't count, doesn't matter, and it should to him, or he's saying that he's guilt, that he's the one who is the father of the child, and that he broke his betrothal vows. Hmm. Joseph is upright. He has high standards, but he's also merciful. Verse 19 says, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Is that how you'd respond? Is that how you respond to betrayal? Hmm. Now, here's his options. He's got to divorce her. Um, because she had been caught in adultery, or not caught in adultery, but because she was pregnant and apparently guilty of, of adultery, he could institute a public trial and assemble the elders and witnesses, and, and they could do this out in the open publicly. And if this were uh, the days of Moses, she would be stoned. It doesn't appear that they did that much in, in, in Joseph's day. He could do that really humiliate her. Or he could, just very quietly, with one or two witnesses, give her a certificate of divorce. It would be a paper that would say, um, we're no longer betrothed. You're free to marry anybody else, somebody else. And that was the choice he was going to make, quietly, with an eye on protecting Mary as much as possible. Now, how does that make you feel about Joseph? No revenge. He's not going to take revenge. He's going to be as kind as possible. He cannot marry her, but he's not going to destroy her in the process. Is that how you'd respond? We have in this man a combination of upright character and mercy. Do you know people like that? It's a rare combination for someone to have both of these things. It is easy for a person to be upright and to follow all the rules personally, but be mean and judgmental towards other people, towards people who don't measure up to your standard. It's really easy to do that. And maybe you can think of, or actually you can think of, merciful people, people who never draw any lines. They're always glad to see you, but nothing ever really gets cleaned up. They're merciful not very upright. Now, from a biblical perspective, we know true righteousness is always merciful and true mercy is always righteous, but it's, we human beings don't balance that very well. And Joseph's going to walk this line. He's going to try. He's going to walk this line of being upright and being kind. You know what that means? All the really merciful people are going to accuse him of being judgmental. And all the really judgmental people are going to be uh, 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 all, uh, all the people who are, are going to accuse him of being soft on sin. He's going to get accusations from both sides. It's one of the signs maybe that you're actually making good choices in life when people on opposite views are criticizing you. 
right? You, you can trust someone like Joseph. Look at the choices he's making. He's worthy of respect. You can trust him. He's telling the truth about this baby. Now, verse 20 tells us that he had to think about this. He's thinking about this. William Hendrickson sees some hesitancy here that Joseph is resolved to do something, but he resolved in what to do, but he's still not sure, so he decides to sleep on it. How well would you sleep? Another reason to admire this man. Look, he can sleep under this pressure. Good for him, right? So, and, and, and an angel shows up to him in a dream. Now, why did Joseph only get dreams? Mary, the angel shows up to her, her personally. She's awake during the day. Angel comes, reveals her, uh, the, himself to Mary. Uh, even the shepherds, the shepherds saw angels in the sky. Joseph only gets dreams. Why does Joseph only get dreams? I don't know. But uh, here's my guess. Here's my guess. I wonder if the Bible here is trying to help us think about another Joseph in the Bible with whom God spoke to through dreams. So that Joseph, that Joseph also had to submit to God's plans. His life was also shattered. He also ended up in Egypt. He was an integral part of God's plan to rescue his people. Two Josephs, two similarities, all these similarities. Well, you can think about that and see if that makes sense to you. Now, the angel called Joseph, and the angel said, Joseph, son of David. Odd. Well, he is the son of David. Uh, Joseph is the only person besides Jesus in the Gospels who's called the son of David. Two men, Joseph and Jesus, both. Joseph, son of David, the text says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then there's Matthew's commentary on this. Matthew's commenting on it. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if this were a Bible class, a college class on biblical interpretation, we'd have to stop here and talk about Matthew and Isaiah and how the two passages in Isaiah 7 that he quotes compares to Matthew and, and, and how Matthew understands the prophecy. We were not going to do that. Uh, for now, Matthew believes this is part of God's plan, that, that a baby arriving this way through a virgin conception is a sign that God is going to rescue his people just like he promised. I love what Joseph did here. Joseph does what Joseph always does. In every instance when the angel appears to him in a dream, Joseph gets up and immediately obeys. That's what he does. Uh, he does the same thing in chapter 2 when the angel tells him to go to Egypt. He does the same thing when the, the angel tells him to come home. He does the same thing when the angel tells him to go to Nazareth. If this were a Broadway play, he'd have to sing a song about it, but he doesn't. If this were a Shakespeare play, he would need to do a monologue. There'd be a five-minute monologue here as Joseph contemplates. He doesn't. He just obeys immediately, quickly, gladly. He takes Mary home, and he upholds her virginity, the text says. They didn't consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. Jesus, Joseph, in this passage, is the chief witness to the virgin birth of Jesus. And based on his character, he's a trustworthy witness. 
He reacts just like you would expect a trustworthy man to react. His reaction shows us that Jesus, oh, there is something, <coughs> something unique about this man, the Lord Jesus. Now, this is going to lead me here to my second reason why Matthew focuses our attention uh, from the beginning on Joseph. So by his response to the virgin birth as a witness to it, he highlights the identity of Jesus, that he is a unique person born of Mary. But now in the second role that Joseph plays in Matthew's gospel, we're <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, what, what Joseph is going to do here is he's going to talk to us about the work that Jesus does. So first his identity, now his work. Here's what the second role that Joseph plays in this gospel. Joseph here is a model of the sort of disciple that Jesus is going to make. Joseph is a model of the sort of disciple that Jesus is going to make. Now, follow me here with, uh, just for a minute. At the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus, well, let's see. Where do I want to put the end? Put the end over here, right? The end of the book of Matthew, Jesus makes this promise. He says, I am with you always. Go and make disciples. Teach them everything that I have taught you. You do to them what I have done to you. And you know what? I'm going to be with you always. That's the end of Matthew. At the beginning of Matthew, we have this great promise about this one who is going to come, who's going to be born. And, and you know what he, we're going to call him? We're going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. He's, he's with us always. And we have here highlighted the story, uh, 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 the life of a man entrusted with raising this, this, this uh, promised son who is going to bear a striking resemblance to the sort of person that Jesus wants the disciples to make. You understand that? Does that make sense? So the beginning of Matthew and the end of Matthew, you have this parallel of this promise that God, that Jesus is with us, and you have the command to make disciples, and you have a man named Joseph who is very much like the sort of person that Jesus wants the church to make, his disciples to make. I want to show that to you in, in a couple of, uh, of different ways. There is uh, two characteristics or two qualities that Joseph shows us in chapter 1 uh, that, that Jesus will come back to and teach over and over and over again. We have already talked about, number one, his upright kindness. His upright kindness. This combination of fidelity to God and mercy to other people. This strikes me, I think, is a great way of describing what the Bible is talking about when it tells us to take the first and second great commandments seriously. Because Joseph loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he cannot marry Mary. But because he loves his neighbor as himself, he will not destroy her in the process uh, of, of ending their betrothal. I am intrigued in the Gospels. I'm constantly intrigued. I'm undone in the Gospels, really, by how the Lord Jesus himself can be so upright. He never sinned, not once, and yet he's the friend of sinners. He never falters from the straight path of obedience that God has given to him, and yet those whose lives are a mess, people with lives who are a mess, they're drawn to him. How did Jesus do that? How did he do that? I think he learned about it for, from the beginning at, at his home. Joseph tells the story 
Every parent tells their children the story of how they met. One of the things you do, you talk to your children about how you met and how your husband proposed or how you asked your wife to marry you. You, you tell the story to your children. You suppose Joseph told this story to Jesus and, and, and little Jesus is starting to learn how do you do this? How do you love God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? How do you, how do, you do both of these things? This upright kindness. Joseph was familiar enough with the grace of God that he was willing to extend it to Mary, it controlled his choices, this upright kindness. But he also, secondly, demonstrates courage. So there's his upright kindness, and then there's his courage. If you're going to follow the Lord Jesus, if you're going to be his follower, it requires courage. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Why would he be afraid? Why would he be afraid? Tim Keller says that there's three types of courage even in this passage. First, he said there's the courage to take the world's disdain. The courage to take the world's disdain. What do you think people would say about Joseph? There's hints of this in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, that there was a lot of gossip about Jesus and who his real father was. Either Joseph had broken his own vows and, and had, had, had been sleeping with Mary or he married an unfaithful woman and was raising some other man's child. Can you imagine what the crude people would say, the crude jokes that they could say about Joseph? How did this hurt his business or damage his reputation? Following Jesus faithfully is not the fast track to be accepted by your peers. If you meet a, a new group of, of people for the first time, new neighbors or new parents at the PTO or new classmates when the semester changes, um, don't think that the easiest way to gain universal acceptance is to identify yourself as a Christian. If Jesus really is at the center of your life, it will put you out of sync with other people, and that requires courage. Secondly, there's a courage, the courage to give up your right to self-determination. The, right to give, uh, the courage to give up your right to self-determination. So this is the way we're taught that the world is supposed to work. You set your destiny. You make your decisions about your life. Your life is to be an expression of who you are and what makes you happy. You set out the path because you're going to determine your own path, but God sets Joseph's path. He, he loses a lot of determination, self-determination here. His marriage, his own son, where he lived. He didn't even get to name his boy. God gave him the name. Remember what Jesus said, whoever would be my disciple must deny themselves and take up my, their cross and follow me. Last week, we spent some time this, uh, praying for some of our brothers and sisters in China who are being persecuted. There's a congregation in particular in the city uh, called Chengdu. It's a church, it's a large church, a few thousand people, called Early Rain Covenant Church. And last week, uh, this, that church is one of the largest underground Protestant Christian churches in China. Last week, Chinese officials arrested over a dozen uh, leaders from the church. And on Sunday, last Sunday, they locked the building and um, uh, guards stood outside. Can't go in the church, can't meet. 
So about 50 members of the church met to worship in a nearby park, which is completely illegal. And during the service, they quoted this line from the, uh, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's what they said to each other. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's comfort, but you know, it's also threat. I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord Jesus. Joseph, who do you belong to? Whose are you, Joseph? Both body and soul, who do you belong to? Both in marriage and parenting, Joseph, whose are you? And, and Joseph says, I am not my own. It's the sort of courage that Christ calls us to. Now, finally, here's there's the courage to admit that you are a sinner. The courage to admit you are a sinner. We read ver, uh, verse 21. It says, it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, I think. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew's just listed, you can see it right there in chapter 1, the, the Jesus family tree there. It's actually Joseph's family tree. There's some fine men and women on the list, but uh, by and large, these people are a mess. It's a rogues gallery. They need to be rescued. Joseph may be a righteous man, but he's not a perfect man. He still needs a rescuer, and he welcomes this baby whose name means Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. Because Joseph needs to be rescued. We need to be rescued because of the sin, the conditions that we have created by our own sin. We're in a state of rebellion against God, and we have no means outside of ourselves, inside of ourselves, to rescue ourselves. I once watched a video, I think it was on some blog where a mother was complaining about her life, and, and there was a video and, uh, of a, a woman with her little children. She made a fatal error. She had two little children, and she let them out of her sight and let them out of her sight quietly for a long time. She, they, they, were, they were missing. She went into the kitchen, and there they were. Her, her, her toddler son was wearing nothing but a diaper sitting on the kitchen table. His sister was next to him, and she had covered them both from head to toe in creamy peanut butter. <laughs> oh, what did you do? What did you do? The child couldn't even answer, this little child. She'd made a mess. She had no hope of cleaning it up on her own. No hope. In an infinitely worse way, the Bible tells us that we have broken the world that God made. We ourselves are broken. And, and so here's the story of a rescue mission. It's a mission that would culminate in the cross when the Lord Jesus would take to himself our brokenness, our sin, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and he rose again, and all who look to him find uh, life and forgiveness in his name. This rescue, I think, is actually what motivates Joseph's life. Where did, where did he get the courage to accept this scorn? Where did he get the courage to give up the control of his life? He was welcoming the rescuer that we so desperately needed. Being so loved by God, he moves into the world courageously. 
There's an old fable that's told of a king who went out to visit his people and he was walking along the streets of his town and people were following along and standing at the sides to greet the king. And there was a beggar who was sitting on the side of the road and he saw the king coming down and he thought to himself, now oh, if there's anybody who's going to give me a lot, it's going to be the king. So he held up his bowl as high as he could for the king when he passed by to drop something into the bowl. And the king came along and turned to him and Outside of everybody's expectations, the king said to the beggar, what do you have to give me? The beggar was a little bit surprised, but he reached into his bowl and he pulled out three grains of rice from a bag that someone had given him earlier and he, and he emptied them into his, the king's, gave those three pieces of rice into the king's hand and the king walked along, smiled at him, walked on. At the end of the day, the beggar was emptying his bowl to see what he had collected, and, 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 and he poured out the bowl. He found inside, among other things, three grain-sized pieces of gold. And he thought to himself, oh, that I had given the king everything, everything. Here's what God asked of Joseph. Joseph, I want you to give me your marriage. I want you to give me your family. I want you to give me everything. And Joseph got up and obeyed. That's the sort of life that the Lord Jesus produces in all who follow him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning as, and as we are on the verge of in a special way celebrating the incarnation, gathering uh, as, as we do for special Christmas events. Lord, we are mindful of this fine man that you called to raise your son. We're thankful to you for him. Lord, we are challenged by his testimony because it, it, it speaks uh, of the identity of the Lord Jesus, that he's the virgin-born son. You kept your word and sent this baby this unusual way. We're, we're thankful and yet we find in this man, too, so much to it, admire. He who was a righteous man and yet merciful to Mary. Lord, uh, help us as, as we see in him the fingerprints of, of the work that the Lord Jesus would do in all of us. We do pray that you would take up and continue and, and advance this transformation work in us. Thank you for these dear men and women who have come to worship here on uh, this morning as we meet. Uh, fill us with wonder and joy again at this great story, your son come to earth, and this marvelous cast of characters, including this sometimes forgotten father. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen. Will you stand and sing one more time with us? Tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds left their watching, or silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens, 
Shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed our Savior's birth. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born. And God sent us salvation, that blessed Christmas born. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain, that Jesus Christ is born. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. That Jesus Christ is born. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> 